Well, it's so good. It's so good to see uh, everyone here this morning and uh, to be with you all. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we ask that your Spirit would now help us to count it as our highest joy and highest privilege and enabled responsibility to worship you and to hear from your word, to blessed by it, to be challenged by it, to be comforted by it. We thank you, Lord God, that you did not think it too high a price to pay for our salvation than to give us your Son. That he came willingly and died voluntarily and obediently according to your will, by your grace, through the help of your Spirit, bearing witness to us from your word and the proclamation of your gospel that we can know him and be saved and delivered from our sin and our shame. We would pray, O Lord God, the same for our neighbor and for our nation, that we as your servants would be salt and light in letting them know and in telling them and in showing them the love of Christ. That you would deliver, O Lord God, our state, and our nation uh, from uh, this present darkness through the servants that you have blessed to be part of your church. We ask, O Lord God, that as those who have been set free, we would work diligently with the help of your Spirit to see that others are also set free from the burden of sin and guilt and shame. And that that awakening in their hearts and the revival, O Lord, within your church would be such that a wave of truth and beauty and glory such as not been seen nor felt before would overcome us. That we would sing, He is worthy. He is worthy to break the seal and to open the scroll. He is worthy to bear our sin upon the cross. He is glorious in his rising and more glorious by his ascending and even more glorious in his return. And so it is, O oh Lord God, with bowed and humbled hearts and grateful hearts that we come to you this morning and ask for your assistance and ask for your help. For it is no small thing, O oh Lord God, for us to worship you it is no small thing, O Lord God, of which you ask us to worship you, considering the greatness of your mercy and the depth of your almighty loving kindness. Open now to us, O Lord God, your word, that we would hear it, that it would change us, and that we would worship you in all that we do, in all that we say. Father, we ask and pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we return to uh, the letter of 1 John this morning, and we're going to pick up the letter in the, the third chapter of 1 John, and we'll start at verse 10 and read through verse 18, where the beloved disciple writes, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 
We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, shortly before my mother died in 1987, my brother and I gathered by her bedside, and as part of her final instructions to us both, my brother is six years older than I am, just that's just for fuller context. My mother looked at us both and said, look, after I'm gone, promise me one thing, that you'll love one another and not fight. Uh, and to understand the, the background to, to that comment, you have to understand that while she was alive, my mother was an expert at parental algebra. You know, in algebra, what you do to one side of the equation, you do to the other. So mom did her best to make sure that as we grew up as brothers, uh, whatever Anthony got... I got, and whatever I got, Anthony got. Now, despite mom and dad's best efforts, that was not always possible to make sure that we each got the same thing, the same Christmas present and so forth and so on. But even when we didn't get the same thing, and there were things Anthony got that I didn't and things I got that he didn't, uh, even when that didn't happen, it didn't mean that they didn't love us any less and we didn't see this being a matter of unfairness. I mean, that's life. You can't always treat or be fair as you would like. They didn't mean that they loved us any less. And we certainly didn't feel loved any less or that it was unfair. It was just the way things were. And, you know, my mom was worried, however, that when she died, my dad having died three years before, that we would somehow have a falling out and fight over the estate, which didn't happen. So in the 30... Four years since her death, I'm happy to announce my brother and I still love each other, and we have never fought. As a matter of fact, my brother has proven to be incredibly generous uh, to Jill and me, and, and, and we, in, in our own way, have been generous toward them. I thought about that conversation that my mother had with us as I prepared this message, and it added for me a, a kind of a personal insight, or at least a, a texture to this this section of First John, the message that John refers to, the message that they have heard from the beginning, harkens back to what Jesus said to John and the other apostles on the night that he was betrayed. Sometimes we read this uh, comment that Jesus makes on uh, Monday, Thursday, or the Thursday before Good Friday. You remember in John 13, uh, 34 and 35, Jesus told the apostles, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. 
Just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. By this, Jesus said, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. One reason, one reason we ought to love one another is so that all people will know that we follow Jesus. A second reason that we should love one another it comes right out of 1 John. Verse 10, John there says, by this, and you, you hear there the echo of Jesus' words in John 13, by this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not born of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother or sister in Christ. That's the implication of that word. So on the one hand, we must love one another because that's how all people know that we are disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, says John, we must love one another because we have been born of God. And when you're part of the same family, when you're adopted into the same family, you learn to love your siblings, your brothers or your sisters. You may not always get along, but even there you find ways to reconcile, to make up, and to live together in harmony and in peace. And that's the heart of what John is saying, that since we have been born of God, it matters how we treat one another, not simply within the body itself, but as a public witness as well. See how these Christians love one another. That was one of the phrases and expressions that were used of Christians in the book of Acts and throughout early church history. See how these Christians love one another. We do that because we have been born again. We've been born into the family of the church and into the family of God. John says it early on in chapter 3, see how great a love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And so if we're children, that means we're related by blood, not our blood, but we're related by the blood of Christ, and that blood of Christ which unites us under him and in him, which means that we are in love when we are in Christ, and so since we're in love and in Christ, we then are responsible to learn how to love one another, more than just sort of get along with one another, but to love. And John will explain that further as we, we get into the text. And so being born of God makes us family. That makes God our Father. It makes Jesus our Savior and older brother. And it makes the, the Holy Spirit the one who verifies uh, the fact that we are children of God. So we must love one another because that's how members of God's family are to treat one another in Christ, says John. And when we love one another, we prove that we indeed are part of that family, that we belong to the family of God. John, just to repeat verses 11 and 12, this is the message you have heard from the beginning. And indeed, you can even make the case that the message that you've heard from the beginning goes further beyond what Jesus said in John 13. And we're going to see how that works out in just a moment. We should not be like Cain, he says, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And there's an old fable that's uh, told about how uh, agents of Satan had tried and failed miserably to get this holy man to commit a sin. And frustrated at the incompetence of his minions, Satan undertook the case by himself and just set his uh, minions aside and said, watch this. And so he crept up very stealthily 
next to the holy man and whispered into his ear, your brother has just become bishop of Alexandria. And with that, a scowl came over the holy man's face. His eyes narrowed, his jaw tightened, and his hands clenched into fists. And then satisfied with his success, Satan turned to his agents and said, you see, evil is our best weapon against those who pursue holiness. Envy is our best weapon against those who pursue holiness. And what is envy? Because it's envy that drove Cain to murder his brother. Envy is that, that painful or resentful awareness that someone possesses something you don't, some advantage you don't have, but you want to possess and will do anything to possess it. So it's envy that took root in Cain's heart. The story of Cain and Abel goes back to the first book of the Bible, goes back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis 4, uh, 4 and 5, we're told that uh, the Lord, Abel and Cain both brought offerings to the Lord in that chapter. And we're told that the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his sacrifice, but on Cain and his offering, uh, he did not look with favor. Now, it's not really until the New Testament, when we get to the New Testament book of Hebrews, that we learn why it is that God accepted Abel's offering. In Hebrews 11.4, we're told it's by faith Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain did, that by faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And so Abel's offering is looked upon with favor by God because it was offered with faith, a wholehearted faith wholehearted trust and reliance upon God. He did what was right in God's eyes, and he did it for the right reasons, by faith. In contrast, apparently, Cain's offering was the half-hearted act of someone simply fulfilling a religious obligation. So he did what was right, but he did it for the wrong reason. And so God rejected his offering. And even when God approached Cain and told him how to make things right with him, if you read on in Genesis 4, you'll see that Cain disobeyed God's instructions and he allowed envy to captivate him so much that he went out and murdered his brother. And by doing so, John says, Cain demonstrates that he belonged to Satan. He belonged to the evil one. We're had Cain chosen then to obey God, he would not have murdered Abel. Had he loved him the way a brother should love a brother, he would have killed his envy, not his brother. Because family takes care of family. You don't commit fratricide simply because your brother happens to have better toys than you do or gets more of mom or dad's approval because you do. Cain's actions proved he did not belong into the family of God. His actions really can be traced to, I would call it, some of you remember, may remember this phrase from the, the CG article that you read about church matters, that his actions, I think, can be traced to Cain's crafting a personalized spirituality, a personalized spirituality that allowed him to justify his envy, which ultimately led him to justify murder. Now, here's the lesson that 
John were to draw from this, I think, is that in the same way Abel did what was right in God's eyes and suffered because of it, the, the same can happen to us. It happened to Jesus. <laughs> but Jesus did what was right in God's eyes. He did what was right in the people's eyes as well. You read there, and certainly in Mark's gospel, in the transition from Mark 7 to Mark 8, Mark ends chapter 7, I think, by saying, and uh, everyone spoke well of Jesus because he did what was right. So we can do all of the right things for the right reasons, says John, and still end up on the short end of things, which is why he says in verse 13, don't be surprised when the world hates you because they hated Christ. And Jesus himself said it. And remember, too, that the, the world, as John uses it here, refers not to the, necessarily the created world that we see out there, the birds, the bees, the trees, and such and such, but a, a, a system that is dominated, if you will, by the, by the enemy. And Jesus himself told his disciples, he said, look, if the world hates you, understand and know that they hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would, would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, just think about that in terms of how that affects us and how that we understand that. Jesus chose us knowing that his choice of us to be in the family of God might result in the world having a certain resentment. You don't really have to go out of your way to earn the world's resentment, the world's hatred. You just, just live your life by biblical principles. Just try to tell them about the things that we sang about. Tell the world about sin and how it separates us from God. And you'll get a varied amount of responses to that diagnosis. And so here Jesus is laying the groundwork that it's going to happen. Now, it may not happen all the time, but when it happens, we ought not to be surprised about it, is really what John is saying. We shouldn't be surprised when the world hates us for doing what's right in God's eyes. John says in verse 13, don't be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and the sisters as well. You can include that. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. How to, how to get this across? When I, was a, when I was a kid, like most kids, you come across a stray cat, and my first instinct was to make friends with this stray cat. So you kind of stoop down, approach the stray cat. And sometimes the cat would accept my offer of friendship. You know, curl up, kind of rub against my leg, and it would purr, you know, let me pet it. Sometimes, sometimes the cat would bite <laughs> and scratch. And I come to realize the world is like a stray cat. Sometimes you make that offer of kindness, you, 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 you explain why it is you go to church, you explain why it is you believe in the Bible, you explain why it is you believe in Jesus and how he has captivated your heart, 
And they respond to that. They, they, there's something, the Spirit works in their heart, and they begin to see the light begins to dawn, and, and there's a crack in that shell, and, and the, the Spirit begins to do His work, and the Word takes root. And sometimes you tell people about why it is you believe in Jesus, and they bite, and they scratch. It's the second response, says John, that we ought not to be surprised by. The first response is the one that's surprising. Because the world, the people in it, as were we before we came to know Christ, were like stray cats. And they won't be tamed until they're tamed by the love of Jesus, in the same way that we were not tamed until we were tamed by the love of Christ. And so just understand that when you go out into the world, and sure, we love one another in the family, but at times when we take that love outside these walls, there's going to be resistance to it. You don't seek it. You don't deliberately go out and provoke. But when it happens, John says, don't be surprised. We have been tamed by the love of Jesus. See what manner of love the Father has, says John, that we should be called children of God. We have passed out of death into life. The bridge by which we pass out of death into life, out of spiritual death into spiritual life, the bridge that does that, the bridge that carries us across, is none other than the cross of Christ itself. By God's grace, we have passed over from the world of sin and darkness, as the Bible would call it, into the kingdom of light and love and grace and mercy. We have passed over or passed out of that world by faith in Christ, the Passover lamb. Jesus describes how this is possible in John 5, 24. Jesus says, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, I have to stop here and, and uh, just do a brief, very brief, very brief word study. That word that Jesus uses in John 5, pass, is the same word, the same verb that John uses in verse 14. It's this wonderful Greek verb, meta baba kamen. Meta baba kamen. It means to have crossed over. It has a literal meaning to cross over to or change location. So, I've changed location. That's physically. John uses it metaphorically, that we have changed our state or we have changed our condition. Or actually, our condition has been changed. Our state has been changed. And it has been changed by the blood of Christ, by a work of the Holy Spirit, by faith in Him, so that we have passed from, we have crossed over from spiritual death into spiritual life. And having made that crossing by virtue of God's grace and God's faith, says John, we now have eternal life abiding in us. We have the Spirit taking up residence in us. And so by faith in Christ, we pass from life, from death to life. So that having undergone that spiritual rebirth, Physical death no longer becomes a, a thing that we fear in terms of separating us eternally from God. 
That's Jesus' point in John 5. So the world may hate you, the world may do terrible things to you like Cain did to his brother. But even that cannot separate us from the unearthly love which God has given us by which he makes us his children. We cross that line from spiritual death into spiritual life. And having crossed that line here, we will cross that line when we die. And we enter fully and finally into the very presence of the one who has showered us and lavished upon us his love, his grace, and his mercy. The crossing over from the spiritual death into spiritual life is that really at the heart of, of Paul's ministry as well. We, we discussed this in our uh, CLC on Jonah this morning, that in Ephesians 2.4, Paul describes it like this, God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And then, again, he says a similar thing in Colossians 3, uh, 13 and 14. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, Paul says, uh, speaking of God the Father, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us. Some translations will say, and translated us from, uh, to the, the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So there is this means of having crossed over. So we undergo a change of condition, a change of status. And all John, all the Bible is telling us here is, having undergone that change of status, having been made part of the family of God, how ought we then to live? We ought to live in such a way as we love one another and regard one another the way that God regards us in Christ. God regards us as his children. We regard one another as his children. We regard one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's a very simple test to know whether or not you've made that crossing. <laughs> do you love your brothers and sisters in the church? I know that you do. But it's a, it's a question that we are constantly challenged to ask ourselves as we go through our life together as followers of Christ and as his church. Do we love the brothers and the sisters? And John is careful to really, at this point, limit it to within the church. He wants us to love the world. He wants us to be witnesses. He wants us to be salt and light. But in this moment, he says, really, the way that it's easy sometimes to love the world, right? I mean, every, every family member knows this, right? I love I love my family, but sometimes they drive me crazy. And so it's easier to love a stranger than your brother or your parents. <laughs> John says, don't let that attitude infiltrate the church. Because we didn't choose this family. It is chosen for us. And God chose you and he chose me to be part of this family. And God doesn't make bad choices. God doesn't make bad decisions. God doesn't make malicious choices. So a brother or sister who may be a thorn in your side is an opportunity for you to learn grace, mercy, and how to speak the truth in love. And if you're the one who's a thorn inside, it's an opportunity for you to learn humility and humbleness and graciousness in receiving correction and instruction. That's part of how we hold one another accountable. It's part of how iron sharpens iron in the body. 
We're back, right? We're back to John 13, 34, and 35. This is how all people will know that we are followers of Christ, that we love one another, that we forgive, that we reconcile, that we encourage, that we build up, that we hold accountable, that we work together in the work of the ministry that God has given to us, that we pray for one another. And that there's one thing I, have, I am impressed with, in, just in a short time is here, is a love for God's word, a love for praying for one another and with one another, and a love for gathering with one another, which is why I know we're all praying for the day we can take these silly masks off and just all be together. <laughs> and so that we, we don't have to do virtual anymore. We can do in person. And there's that desire. Where does that desire come from if not from this inner sense from the Spirit that we really want to demonstrate love for one another by doing this? And this section, this middle section, really ends, I think, too, with John, John showing flashes of the nickname that was given to him and his brother James. Remember, they were referred to as the Sons of Thunder? And you know, here John, this, this old fellow, by the time he writes it, there's, there's still some fire in his belly. When he writes in verse 15, um, the fact that the, um, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer... And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. There's, there's some fire in the belly there. There's, there's a son of thunder re-emerging. This, this genteel old man is now sort of just letting know one more time. Right? Cain hated his brother. Cain murdered his brother. Cain did not have eternal life in him. Translation, don't be like Cain. <laughs> be like Jesus instead. Right? Who when he was reviled did not revile back. When he was cursed, did not curse back. When he was spat upon, did not spit back. When he was slandered against, did not return slander. When he was gossiped about, did not return that gossip. But forgave and forgave and forgave. Because love is the one unconquerable thing, the one indefatigable, indefeatable thing that exists. Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, these three abide, faith, hope, and love. Right? But, but the greatest of them is love because that's the thing that will endure. Because when we see Jesus as he is, we won't need faith because our faith will be realized. When we see Jesus as he is and behold him, our hope is fulfilled. We don't need hope. All that we are bathed in at that point is the love of God because we are in the presence of love itself. It's a wonderful image that C.S. Lewis creates in one section of The Great Divorce where a woman meets um, uh, her, her husband and uh, there is some alienation between them and the, and the, the woman is in, is in heaven and the, the, the way The Great Divorce works, visitors from hell come to visit with people from heaven and they have this conversation and the husband is trying to wheedle his way into his wife's heart by manipulation and getting her to pity him. And she's saying, don't you understand? I'm in love. I don't need you the way that you need me. Because here, we, all of those needs are fulfilled. And so the idea of loving one another is to find such great fulfillment in being loved that we can love unhesitatingly and unconditionally. As so we learn how to love one another, says John, by imitating what Jesus did. 
By this we know, love, he says, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love the, in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. How do we know Jesus loves us? Because he laid down his life for us. He, on a human level, Jesus doesn't know us. He lived 2,000 years ago, but on a deeper, higher spiritual level, he knew it from the, before the foundation of the world. And he died for me. You don't know me. You don't know how bad I can be. You don't know the evil that lurks in my heart, the envy that exists there, the pride that lurks in the dark corners that I don't like to talk about. And yet he died for me. He died for you. That's love. We didn't deserve it. That's why it's grace. What we deserved was to be in his place. That's mercy, because we did not get what we deserved. And Jesus died, you understand, not grudgingly, like, yeah, okay, I guess I'll do it. Right? I guess I'll just go down there, and those ungrateful creatures, I'll just die for them. And then they'll know I really love them. Not how it happened. Willingly, voluntarily, obediently, lovingly, graciously, mercifully, he dies for us. And so in the same way that Jesus laid down his life for us, John says, lay down your life for one another. And right there we have a problem. Because our immediate thought there is, John's talking about the big ticket. He's talking about the moment when we step in front of the bullet, or we take the knife, or we jump in front of the car while we push a loved one out of the way. Or is it, you know, the, the tormentors are coming through the door, we, we stand up to them. That's one way to take the text. I remember listening to a sermon by a, a preacher, and he talked about that. As a young boy, he always thought that that's what it meant. You know, the, you lay down your life for someone. You make the ultimate sacrifice. You know, you're the soldier who throws himself on the grenade to save his buddies. We saw all of those movies. And he says, then I, as I grew up and got older, I began to realize less and less God asks me to write the big check, because that's the easy check to write. It's the little check. It's the forgiving, the unkind comment that's made over the breakfast table. It's, it's, it's finding the humility to ask for forgiveness from your child when you know you've crossed the line. Or finding the humility as a teenager to go to your mom and dad and say, I didn't really tell you the truth about what happened. That's the small check. That's laying down your life. That's loving one another. And that comes from trust. That comes from building a relationship. That, that comes from the community of the spirit by which God weaves us together. That's how we're salt. That's how we're light. That's by, it's learning in the very best sense to say, I am sorry. And then forgiving that. We may never be in the position of having to lay down our life physically, dying for someone. Which is why I think 
the very next thing that John says is, if anyone, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I have searched, I think I finally found it, but I have searched and searched. There's a quote from Martin Luther uh, that I have heard and read over and over again. I think it's in his treatise on good works. But the quote goes something like this, a bit of a paraphrase. God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. John is talking about basic generosity here. That whether we as Christians are rich or poor, comfortable or not, if we have the means to help a brother or sister in need, help. It could be cooking a meal, it could be paying a bill, a hospital bill, an insurance bill, rent, mortgage, car repair, maybe even be helping them buy a car, I don't know, but it's whatever God has, if he has blessed us materially and financially, could be a room in the house that we offer to someone who needs a place to stay. Help. Very practical at this point, the way John, John talks. But I think it's it, in addition to this, in addition to these physical things, there are other things that we can do to show our love for one another. And those, uh, I think just about everybody, if, if you're not in a CG, those of you who are in a CGs, you, we read there were eight things that were listed in this week's uh, CG session. Eight ways that we can demonstrate not only commitment to the local church, but I think just as importantly, love for one another. So that we love one another by our regular attendance at corporate worship gatherings or corporate prayer gatherings or CGs. Understand that your presence, our presence together, is a way of expressing love for one another. It, it's, it's, not so much, it's not just a duty. You say, look, I really enjoy being with you Worshiping with you, listening to the Word of God preached, sharing the Word of God by preaching. I enjoy spending time with you. That's loving one another. We love one another by, by seeking and promoting peace among ourselves. By sowing seeds of peace and love. We love one another by building one another up in love. By actively participating in the life and ministry of the church. We love one another by holding one another accountable for how our lives are reflecting or not reflecting the character of Christ. We certainly love one another by pursuing reconciliation with one another any time a misunderstanding arises. We love one another when we bear patiently with one another and treat one another the way that we would like to be treated. We love one another when we prepare for worship especially on those Sundays when we celebrate baptism, the Lord's Supper, or even members' meetings, praying for those meetings. And we love one another when we give generously in support of the work of the ministry at MGC. I want to commend you for doing these things, and I want to encourage us all to keep doing them. It's easy sometimes to hear something like that and think, oh, well, got to do more, got to do more. I want to commend you for doing them, because you are. You're a very generous congregation. We have experienced that generosity, and I know others have as well. We've experienced love and kindness, and I just want to encourage us all to pursue that, 
because that will make us more and more attractive to a world that is more inclined to look at us sideways than it is full on. And we want the world to look at us full on. We want to be as transparent as we are in Christ with one another. I began um, by talking about parental algebra. Understand that when God sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins, that was also a kind of parental algebra, but it was of a different kind. Jesus, you understand, got the punishment and death that we deserved. We received the grace and mercy that we didn't deserve. That doesn't seem fair, but that's grace. That's mercy. That's Jesus laying down his life so that we can be born of God. That's Jesus laying down his life so that we, by loving him and receiving his love in return, can love one another. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that grace and mercy are real things because they are found in a real person as is love. And so as we are continued to be loved by you, help us with the assistance of your Holy Spirit to love one another. That by doing so, we would bring both honor and glory to you and to your name and to your church and to your son. And also, Lord, that we would bear witness to those who who long to experience that kind of love but don't know where to find it. And they can find it in your Son. They can find it, O Lord God, in your church. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.